PBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 17, KD. In this week's episode, we went through KD's statements. We actually covered quite a bit about Eva and the timeline, and then we got into KD's criminal record. I've asked all of you to ask your questions, uh, send us your comments and your voicemails. We got a few voicemails and several questions. Zach and I are back from CrimeCon and sitting right here next to Mike. All three of us are home again. Welcome back, guys. Hey, we survived. We did it. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. Hey, real quick, before we get into the uh, the content of this week's episode, I did want to give you a little update on a previous season, season six. That is the murder of Jim Melgar in the wrongful conviction of Sandy Melgar. Spoke with Liz Rose last week, and she has up. We've had for years now a $20,000 reward available that was crowdfunded, a combination of you listeners uh, uh, donating money matched by me and then a large chunk matched by Liz. Uh, Liz is, um, has, has come up with even more for that. So the announcement I'll make and to please share across any social media is that there is now a $100,000 reward for anyone with information that leads to the arrest of the actual murder of Jim Melgar. It's $100,000 now. So I want to make sure I announce that. Um, if you don't follow Liz on Twitter or Instagram, you should do that. She's got some posts that are easily shareable, but let's, let's get that information out. We're not letting that case go. We're still fighting. Kathleen Zellner is still fighting with that case. I think we're getting closer to an exoneration, but we need to keep pushing, uh, not only just to get Sandy out of prison, but also to find the killer of Jim Melgar and bring him to justice. Okay. Let's get into these voicemails. Now, our first one comes from listener Corey. Hi, my name is Corey Krause, calling from Lansing, Michigan, to leave a message for the Friday follow-up. Uh, so listening to, I just finished the episode of Katie, and uh, personally, I have a hard time taking what he did after 17 and kind of formulating that back to say this is how he was at 17, and therefore we can say whether or not he had anything to do with this murder. So my question is, have you made any effort to reach out to people that knew him and knew who he was at that time, uh, or even reach out to KD. He's still alive and incarcerated. So can we talk to him and see if he has any additional information? 
Maybe he wants to come clean. Maybe he wants, you know, some spice of life because jail is probably boring. So I'm wondering if this would just be fun for him to, you know, interact. So, uh, you know, are we going to do that? Thanks, guys. Love the show. Have a great day. First of all, to to touch on your first point, whether we can – I really put much weight into the behaviors of KD years later, as as you said, after he was 17, and use that as an indicator of who he was when he was 17. What are your thoughts on Zach? I know you ha- you had some some notes on that. KD obviously later in his life became an absolute monster. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's very easy to say. You said it in the episode. I mean, absolute monster, very violent. But the way that it looks, and this is just an outside source looking at it is it looked like all his violence was directed at partners of domestic violence, mm-hmm. which anytime that's, I mean, that's about controlling. That's about power over that person. That is not right. necessarily like open violence. That's not robbery. That's not, you know what I mean? He's not going in trying to control a person to rob them. I mean, he's, he's trying to control a person such as the woman he had a child with. There's probably something right. else there. I'm not defending him. It's horrible. Everything he did was horrible, but I feel like it's a different capacity than the violence it would take to go in and murder somebody. It's a different kind of violence. Um, maybe there's more that were, you know, other incidents that he wasn't arrested for that we don't know about. That's very true. Um, so we don't know. But 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 you're not wrong in saying that, yeah, domestic violence is a very, it's like saying that rape is about sex. Mm-hmm. And it's really, rape is not about sex. You know, rape, there, there's other underlying issues. And a lot of it has to do, again, with, with control. And so... Yeah, I mean they're very. He's, I mean, he's just a wretched, rotten person. I'll, I'll say it. I mean, yeah. he, I mean, he, and I, and I don't know. You know, was he always doesn't doesn't necessarily seem that way. You know, yeah, his brother who looked to me that over the years kind of got caught up into a system, into a place where I mean, he, I, I see the actions of a desperate man. Mm-hmm. You, you, you at least get not that that is the case, but you can see that being the case with youngster. Yeah, you know, where it gets to the point where he's. You know, he's he's maybe developed a drug habit. He's probably having trouble getting a job because of his record. And and, you know, they in cases like that, a lot of people turn to burglary and theft and and that that tends to escalate. KD, that's a whole different situation. I mean, that's a different it's very different. And of course, we have youngster that there was an indication that he he hit or slapped one of his one of his partners Mm -hmm. or, or some family. I didn't even say that it was a girlfriend, I don't think, but it's some family member. And obviously that's bad, too. But with KD, you see, you see just the extreme anger and violence towards his partners, and then it, which leads to him going to jail. Which leads to him when he gets out of jail, the way it reads to me is that he gets out of jail and immediately goes right back after her, and then moves on to another girlfriend, and then beats the hell out of her, and then moves on to another girlfriend and beats the hell out of her, and and, and then there's the incident with. You now that he's in prison for right now, he's in prison for murder. And as I said in the episode, maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe it was an accident, but is it? I mean, like, let's say what he said is true. Like, is that forgivable? It's that, very disgusting, whatever. That you got so messed up on drugs and then cared for a baby and it's led to the baby's death. Like, even if that's actually what happened, if it was in, in air quotes accident, like, you still go, like in my opinion, you still go to prison. Absolutely, that's like saying if you get drunk and get behind the wheel of a car and hit a kid. Well, it wasn't my fault. I was drunk. It was an accident. No, it's unforgivable. Yeah, you made decisions that led to that. Yeah, but at the, at the same time, kind of like what you're saying, Zach, is does that mean that he was a violent offender 
when he was 17 years old against a stranger. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I want to preface this with it. No one has been ruled out. I want to make sure I make that clear. No one in this case has been, including Jennifer. I've given you where I'm at right now, where my current hypothesis is based on what we know right now. All of that can change. I think that it is extremely unlikely. I think the words I use is that Jennifer can be all but ruled out. I see about 20 reasons why Jennifer is not guilty of this crime. But then there's, but, but, but I'm, I'm not prepared to say she didn't commit the crime. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot more information we don't know. There's still a few things that are, you know, there, there's still a few questions that are up in the air for me. Uh, one of them we'll be talking about in, in this week's episode. A lot of people have a lot of hanging points. One hanging point for me is the interaction with Red Rock. It probably not for the same reason as a lot of you. And again, I'll get into it in, in this weekend's episode. But I keep coming back to she says Eve is asleep. That doesn't you know, her shooing Red Rock away makes sense based on what like Housen said that like that's pretty normal. Like people he's the guy that annoys everybody and everybody's always shooing him away. Mm-hmm. But that she says Eve is asleep. And I thought, well, yeah, she probably when she left, Eva was asleep. Yeah. But then I come back to, well, but if she thought Eva was asleep and there was nothing happening downstairs then why was she knocking on the door so it would seem that she had some interaction with eva to know or saw eva doing something to know that something was good it's just one of those things that i I can't put my finger on what it means and there's certainly other scenarios that she could have said eva's asleep just because she wanted to get him out of there even though she knew that eva had run off Mm -hmm. all i'm saying is that i have not ruled jennifer out i have not ruled katie out i have not ruled youngster out because there's still questions around them. It does seem like there would be something in that interaction. And, and just as an outsider, but just, it seems like something in that interaction would happen. Even if she knew that something in the happened, she wouldn't just shoo them off like that. She might shoo them off, but it seems like, hey, there's something going on. You need to get out of here. Not tell them Eva's asleep. Leave her alone. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the other. Yeah. It's confusing. It's, it's super it, confusing. It's something that needs to be explored further. So, and, and I'm only telling you that to tell you this because I don't want people to think that, well, why are we ruling youngster out? Why are we ruling KD out? We're not. We're just, we're just assessing. Again, we're still in the very early stages of the investigation. This is the part of the investigation that I really enjoy doing. It's the most interesting to me when we start really digging. And the, you know, the next phase as we continue to go through all these different suspects is the next phase is to start reaching out to people. To, to interview them. You know, there's been people there all along like, well, why don't you call this person and interview this person? The reason I wait is because I don't know the right questions to ask them. I want to have a pretty good idea of what it looks like happen and what everyone else is saying about something before I start asking questions so that I can have a more thoughtful and intelligent interview and, and possibly draw out more of the truth by having some, some ammunition behind me when I'm talking to them. So the reason I'm saying that is because I agree with Corey and with, and with Zach that what what I'm not seeing in that criminal history. You know, if it was six months later, he was caught in a home invasion and beat up a stranger or you know, or something along those lines, and you're seeing this constant pattern of this. I don't see his his pattern of behavior really lining up with this crime. But that's just behavior anal- analysis, and that's just a tool. It's not evidence. But then also you say like, but when I'm looking at his behavior on the day of the crime, you know, Katie and youngster going to talk to Cena and Nina, the twins and the way they describe their conversation and them leaving. Like, I, I just, I cannot reconcile that with, with two guys that have just been involved with murdering someone, you know, they're not nervous. They're acting like teenagers that are, 
interested, you know, they, they, you know, that are that are caught up in the excitement of what's happening, the way they're talking to the police. Like, I, I just don't see. I, I and there's a and there's all the other reasons, right, that we've talked about why they they likely aren't aren't involved. You know, does does Eva get mixed up in some plot with two guys she barely knows? How could they be involved in not Eva? I mean, you almost because of their where they're at in the bedroom or in the apartment. If they're involved, also Eva's involved. I just can't see that scenario. So I'm not seeing anything in the work that we did this week that indicates to me that Katie and Youngster were involved in this crime based on that criminal history. But I do think he's an absolute monster. And the whole, I don't know, the whole, the whole thing, his whole statement is very interesting. I actually do have a question about his statement, and I don't know how much it actually means anything. It's something I caught. He talks about Youngster driving them there. Now, first, I, I went back and listened to make sure that that was actually said, not that they had picked him up and rode there, because he does say that Youngster came and got him with some homeboys. Right. But at one point, he literally says, Youngster drove me and his homeboy to the apartments. Right. And they talk about the car. And at some point, the homeboy, which is weird, I still don't know where this homeboy or why it's called homeboy or who homeboy is, but he leaves. And they and does he take the car? Where is the car? Why do they have a car? You know, I mean, the, the whole car thing is weird to me because that's why they were there. Why they say they were there is they didn't have a ride to leave. Right. But they drove. It's a good point. I didn't catch that. But yeah, so they're saying the statement says that that youngster picks him up in his car and he's driving. Mm -hmm. And then later they're stuck there that night because they're waiting for a ride. And he, and he never necessarily says it's his car. But he says right. youngster is driving. Now, why would I don't know why he would be driving somebody else's car? You know, I mean, that's usually a point of pride. If you have a car, especially at 18, 17, 18, I'm driving my car because I want to drive my buddies around. Not I'm going to let you drive my car because that's the cool thing to do. Yeah, I mean, there's scenarios that you can think of, but yeah, it's it's an unanswered question for sure. I do want to point out too, I run the voicemails. Uh, we did have a voicemail from another Bob. Uh, that was talking about a qualitative research method. It just reminded me we were talking about some of the weirdness from the statement. And it, it, it was it was a good thought. Something we're taking to heart. But it was it was two. It was like three minutes long, and it was about meth, different methods. And he talked about how when you're breaking down these statements, you need to look at like common terminology. And, and, and I agree. These are all things that I do when we do statement analysis. The problem we have here is that we don't have anyone's actual words. So like when you see a a phrase show up in multiple statements and it was the statements were taken by the same cop and the cop is the one typing the statements. We don't know if that's something that all those people said or if those are his words. You know, I don't personally, Katie's whole statement, the sure. He probably said homeboy at one point. Mm -hmm. I don't think he said homeboy five times. Yeah. You know, I don't think he said it. So me and then the homeboy left and then the, you know, mm -hmm. But it's written as though he said those exact words. Well, I, I and I think I, at the beginning of it, he says that, that that his homeboys picked him up. Right. So I can see I can see somebody saying that because you don't want you don't go through and list everybody. If it was a group of people, you're like, oh yeah, it was this guy and his buddies. But then it's the homeboy. But then it's at by the end, it's one person. Yeah. And yeah, it gets narrowed to the homeboy, which is really strange. And he also says, you know, it's youngsters gal. I don't know. I mean. I think somebody in the fan page said that's a Texas thing. So maybe it is for me, like a 17 year old. That sounds like my grandpa would say, you know, is that your gal, Bob? You know, that's uh but anyway, the, the, the issue is that, that where that becomes difficult. The qualitative research method is because we don't have any of their exact words. 
I want to make sure I don't forget the second half of Corey's uh, question as far as reaching out. Yeah. So as I said, we're getting, we're reaching the point now. I have a list of people uh, that I want to talk to. I'm actually planning as of now, if it works out uh, with family scheduling and stuff, I'm going to try the last week of June to get down to Texas, down to Houston and start. You know, I always try to reach people in person if possible before I talk to them on the phone. People are much more reluctant to speak to you over the phone as opposed to in person. But there's several witnesses that that I'd like to speak to uh, about KD and uh, and about several other witnesses and several other events. So yeah, definitely working on that. And as far as KD in prison, there's a lot of there's a lot of ins and outs to that. But uh, the short answer is yeah, I'm 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 working on that. All right, this next voicemail is from Michael. Hey Bob, Mike and Zach. This is Michael from Bucks County, PA. I wanted to. Uh, Put in a, I guess, a question about your thoughts on Catalina's wallet. It keeps on troubling me, and I guess my question is: Do you believe it is something that was obtained during the commission of the murder, or was it something that was obtained after the murder? I'm just kind of curious with your thoughts. And the only other uh, thought I had with the wallet is if. Jennifer had anything to do with the wallet, why wouldn't she have pointed to Eva saying, you know, when she was confronted with the potential of what happened to to Catalina and when she was willing to turn on Eva, why not throw in the wallet as another bone to the officer at the time of the questioning? Uh, any thoughts? Thanks. Uh, love the podcast and look forward to hearing uh, your answers. Michael, that's actually a really good point. And regarding the wallet, I I know there's a lot of theories out there. I think it was taken during the commission of the crime. I think that it was it was part of staging or even just a quick cash grab if it's sitting there. Like maybe there's some cash in it that they can get out of it. I don't see with all the commotion going on in that apartment and a dead body on the floor. I don't see anyone walking in and stealing the wallet in front of everybody. And you know, I don't think the wallet was laying on the floor right there by the door. Nobody reported seeing it there. Nobody reported seeing the purse there. Uh, Cause you, we do have the one part in the statement where Jennifer says that they saw a purse on the floor and Eva said to pick it up. And Jennifer says she put it on the, on the chair, but everybody else, Pam, Keith Truesdale said they didn't even see that. Um, they, they didn't see a purse there on the floor. I just I don't see somebody walking in the midst of that and then like grabbing a wallet. I think that it was taken. That's one of the reasons why I'm 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 certain in my mind that someone at least at least one person in that apartment was a part of this crime uh, for sure. But yeah, it brings another point. And you know, I, I mentioned a, a reason a little bit ago why you know Jennifer's still obviously on the radar. There's still questions I have. But one of the reasons why you know I think she didn't have anything to do with it is because I do not believe she knew anything about that wallet. Once she's giving her statement to Detective Allen, she's trying to give him as much information as she can. She's giving him, you know, she, to the point where she's making up names and she's trying to give him details. It's not like she was just making up a story because what we see leaked in there are the details that Allen knew. She's trying to tell a story that works and we never hear a word about the wallet. And, um, it, and that would have been huge. That would have been a huge key, uh, in the investigation in her cooperating would be to say and we took the wallet in the and the or I took the wallet and the wallet is behind Eva's fridge or if she knew anything about the wallet when she does flip the script and again we've talked about this like anybody who thinks that you know 
The only reason she didn't rat on Eva is because, you know, because she doesn't want to snitch. She did. She tried to rat on Eva. She straight up said Eva did it. Uh, and, and in that, she doesn't say anything about the wallet. She never mentions the wallet. I don't think that Jennifer has any idea about the wallet. I don't think she had any idea about the wallet. I have a hard time with the concealment of the wallet. If, if it's taken after, you know, like somebody just happened to go through and like, oh, we're going to snatch this really quick. The, the concealment seems like they're trying to hide it too much. Like it's too purposeful. Right. Like I feel like if it was something else, you just ditch it. Like why wouldn't you just chuck it in the trash or right. take it? You know, if, if it was Katie or Youngster, if it was one of those guys and they left, why wouldn't they just take it with them? At that point that they left, right, they had never been questioned. You know what I mean? Like they had got questioned later, but they had never been questioned. Right. Well, and that's a really good point because based on the witness statements, if it's Katie and Youngster taking it after the fact mm-hmm. and they were not part of the crime, what do we hear from the witnesses? Once the everybody arrives on the scene and the ambulance is coming, they watch them walk out the door, say, oh, they heard the scream, heard the screaming, walk across the street and then walk down the road and walk away is what we saw happen. When would they have got the wallet and taken it back to Eva's? What did they find it? Yeah, you can, you can almost rule them out as finding that wallet mm-hmm. unless they were actually involved in the murder itself because we know that they got out of the apartment, never went into Catalina's apartment, and then walked away. Unless you think that they came back that night, it was like, hey, I'd like to stash this a little closer to the crime scene if I can. Like, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so I think in, unless they took it in the process of committing the crime, there, I don't think there's any way they had anything to do with the wallet. All right, let's get into these questions, guys. Our first one comes from Dean. Timing-wise, how do we know Eva was saying, quote, who could hurt this sweet old lady before it was announced as an attack? I know she said it. I just don't know how we know when she said it. It's a good question. So I, I'll tell you this. We know when she said it as of now based on the timing of events that we know to be true, right? We know when the time of death was. We know when the ambulance got there. Uh, we know when the police got there. We know when the second call to 911 to report that it was a homicide happened. And then we have the witness statements from her, you know, from multiple sources from outside that says she came out of the apartment and said, you know, how, why would somebody hurt that old lady? And if you look at, I think it's specifically Ruby Sullivan's statement, she talks about exactly when that happened. It was before the ambulance got there, or as, you know, she says, you know, that Katie and Youngster come outside, Eva's still in the apartment as they're waiting for the ambulance to arrive. Then Eva comes out and starts saying that. And and we know it wasn't for till, you know, 25 minutes, 27 minutes later when they they realize it was a murder and said to call the police. That being said, I want to point out I'm starting to question our timeline. I had some really good conversations with uh, a few people on the fan page, a couple, I think, that, you know, kind of are in the Jennifer's is guilty camp, or that's the theory there, and some of them people are on the fence. But uh, I spoke with, I was talking to Danny Cash, uh, God, Chris Dolan, and I think a Jesse Sims, I think. But but I, I, we got into a lot of conversations on the fan page, and that's why I like having those opposing views there. They were kind of challenging some of the timing issues. And as I started to talk to them, I started to, I started to question things, and this is the big one that I'm questioning right now, is we ha- we're working with, we know, it's undisputed, and by the way, no matter, it is undisputed, that the time of death was 9.15, and, and, and I want you guys to understand there's a difference between undisputed and reliable. 
by undisputed, I mean we don't have any evidence to dispute it. There's not another time, another report, something else that says this didn't happen then. But so we have the undisputed time of death at 915. We have the undisputed time of Jennifer's page at 845. I think that's the weakest link in the puzzle because nobody saw the page. She says she showed it to one cop, but then it was deleted. They never pulled pager records. So we're working on the front end of our window of opportunity at 845. It's undisputed. There is no evidence that says that didn't happen, but it's also unreliable. It's it's not, and I don't mean we can't rely on it, but it's something that, it's like there should be an asterisk next to it. Okay, so 845 start time, that's what we have. Nothing's disputing it, but we can't really completely rely on that. The time of death, 915, that's, again, we don't have the EMS report. We don't have a dispatch log. But we do have the ME's report that says EMS pronounced her dead at 915. Uh, that would certainly give you the impression that in the way that process, procedure should work is that she had access to the EMS report. Doesn't say about, doesn't say approximately, says at 915. That's when it's documented. So we have that to work off of. And then we have the the call at 942 a.m. Uh, when, uh, when that's when it says Officer Peekert. Says he was that dispatch came in and he was and he was sent to the scene, and then we we compare and contrast that with Keith Truesdale's statement, uh, who says when the medics got there, we still believed that it was she had just fallen and hit her head. And if you look at there's more, we got more. I found some more stuff digging through the 600 pages of the DA file. There's some more statements from other managers that we're going to be getting into soon. Uh, and it is very clear that Eva did not say anything to them. This this much we do know is true about there being an intruder or an attack. She's only saying that she had hurt herself and that she had screamed. Um, and we have Keith Truesdale confirming that. He literally says, I thought, I thought that she had just hit her head until the paramedics opened up her chest and we saw the knife wounds. Then they said, you know, and he says, then later one of the medics told me to call the police. And since we know the police were dispatched at 942, now we have a time of death at 915 and a call to the police at 942. That's a 27-minute gap. As I said in the episode this week, that 27 minutes seems like a lot, but that's, you know, if you're watching it on TV, you think they're quick radioing it in. We know they didn't radio it in. They had Keith call. And there's just a lot can happen there. Once they know she's dead, the emergency's over, things slow down. But during those conversations, what all of a sudden occurred to me, thinking of practical experience, when I was working on an EMS rig at a fire department, just like them, yes, can you get up? I think I was talking with one of them. I was talking, and I said they could have got caught up in conversation, and they were like, what, what conversation could possibly be given this situation? It's like, you don't understand. People that work in EMS, number one, they're very hardened to this fact. This is, as soon as that patient is dead, they know their job is over. So while you're upset about it and having all these emotions, they're not having that. That's a that's that's skin and bones at this point. Yeah, it seems something they've become very callous to by that point. Very much so. So like, yeah, I mean, literally, I, I haven't many times been at, you know, fatal scenes and you know, run into, you know, somebody standing there, you know, one of the cops are like, Oh, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. What's going on? And start chatting. So that's what I was talking about. But then during the course of those conversations, what occurred to me is why do they go back to the body 27 minutes later? And this is where I'm having a problem right now. And I'm not saying that we can throw the timeline out, but I'm trying to think of from my own practical experience, if you've declared her dead at 915, you've taken your monitors off, whatever's happened, 
whether you get caught in conversation, you're putting equipment, equipment away, you're writing a report, whatever you're doing, I can't think of any reason for them to go back and do a more thorough exam. Because that's what would have to happen, right? They'd have to do a more thorough examination of the body to find the other stab wounds mm-hmm. to realize that she had been murdered and then telling Keith Truesdale to. Now, is that possible? Sure. Maybe somebody's like, well, you know, are those stab wounds? I don't know. Let me look. And but I just, man, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just really just giving you the, the the stream of consciousness of what I'm going through right now in the investigation. I'm not comfortable with that 27 minutes. I'm not as comfortable with it now as I was last week, because yes, it could take some time, but I cannot figure out why they would go back to the body at that point. And re-examine, and, and, and re-examine it. Mm-hmm. We, I, they don't do that. EMA, paramedics don't examine dead bodies. It's not their job. Once they're dead, it's up to the coroner and the ME to figure out how they died. So I can't figure that out. And, and so because of that, that makes me think, well, maybe that 27 minutes is off. Because remember, we still don't have the EMS report. Maybe they were dispatched later. Maybe the ME made a typo. I think one of the listeners had suggested maybe it's a typo. Maybe. We can't assume that. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's still our... Uh, as I'm as I'm saying, undisputed timeline, but I don't feel like it's a super reliable timeline. Now that being said, I want to point out too that because you know the timeline became very important when we we're looking at the window of opportunity for Jennifer because it became very clear if EMS was on scene say at nine eleven in the morning and if her page was at eight forty five, then she couldn't have done it right. Mm-hmm. There's not enough time. Uh, and then I think it was Chris that I was talking to who said, well, but you know he doesn't. He doesn't think that timeline's right because she describes the call to Craig, the call to the phone company, the second call to Craig. And in order for our timeline to even work for her to even get back anywhere close to that, that means she's in the apartment for like eight minutes, uh-huh. which seems really tight for that. And in my discussion with him, I said, yeah, but I mean, we don't know. It could. Anytime somebody's giving, I think it took about, who knows? Yeah. But, but anyway, so our, based on that timeline, it was like, there's just no way she had time to be involved in this. If the timeline ends up being wrong, if we ever get pager records, if we ever get an EMS report, we find out there's a bigger window. That doesn't change my opinion about her on the case. If you, I mean, I, I had come to the conclusion based on her lack of guilty knowledge of the crime, the, the, the obvious falseness of her, of her confession, not knowing about the wall, and a million other reasons why I think that she is not guilty. It was just that that timeline made it so it was, well, on top of that, she couldn't have possibly done it. Mm-hmm. So just know that we're working on that. I would love more thoughts on the time. I know I'm taking up a lot of our time today, but I just I just want to be transparent with you that I was because it was something that I was very sure of, and by by being challenged on it and just in, and talking through it, I, I'm less sure about that timeline. I'll add this really quick, and I won't make it long because I've said this I've said this a couple times this season. Regardless of if Jennifer did what she said she did and she's guilty, which I know you don't believe she you know she is guilty. No justice was served for Catalina. 100%. No justice was served for Catalina. And I think that's the biggest mission right now is we have to have justice for Catalina at this point. Even if Jennifer did what she said she did, there are murderers out there that killed this woman. Right. Yeah, 100%. And that's, you know, I think I answered it last week, but people ask all the time. I'm like, well, how are we going to use this to get Jennifer out? That's not my job. That's a lawyer's job. To figure out how any of this works in her, in her, you know, that's what Undisclosed does is they're looking at what are legal avenues. And certainly we get into that a little bit. My job is to, you know, it's in the title. Mm-hmm. My job is to find the truth. 
is, is to solve the case, try to find the truth, figure out what actually happened so that justice can be served. So that the, so that the people that murdered Catalina Palomino pay for their crimes. And if Jennifer is serving time for a crime she didn't commit, then she needs justice too. But that, that's, that's the effect of our work. Our work is to find out who killed Catalina. Louise says, I don't know if this has been discussed already, but did KD and Youngster testify at Jen's trial? If not, why not? Surely their testimonies are just as important as Eva's. So it, it actually, apologies, in the, in the rush to get that episode done before we went to CrimeCon, the, uh, the closing act of that episode was supposed to be KD's trial testimony. And I just literally spaced it in, in the rush to get it done. Uh, but there's not a lot there. Uh, but remember back way back, we were talking about June Sage and talking about all the witnesses. Like who the prosecution chose not to put on the stand says just as much about their case as who they chose to put on the stand. So you got two witnesses that were in the apartment right there with Jennifer, who was their defendant, and neither of them testify. KD was brought up to testify as a defense witness. It's super short. It's only a few pages long. Uh, and we haven't even really got into the defense yet as far as the uh, effectiveness of the counsel that Jennifer received. But her, her lawyer, he took a lot of swings in cross-examination during the state's case. And then didn't put up a fight at all for when, the, when it got, got to the defense case. At all. Like, like the entirety, I think I've mentioned this before. We only had like three witnesses. It was, um, excuse me, it, the state did call KD. He wasn't a defense witness. Coyne put up Jennifer's mom and her grandma to explain to the jury that the police didn't let her have her mom there when she was, uh, when she was being interrogated. And so the, in the state's rebuttal to that, because Jennifer's grandmother tells a story about how when they pulled up, when Katie was in the car, she asked to go with, they told her she could get her keys and then she drove away. So the state's rebuttal to that is they call KD as a witness. And I'm here. Here it is. Here's KD. He's going to give his trial testimony. He's going to, you know, let's see what he has to say. The only thing he's asked about by either side is whether or not he saw Jennifer's grandmother outside and went to get the keys. That's amazing to me. Why? Why is that the only? That's amazing to me. Nobody asked him a single. Well, well keep in mind. Remember, Coin didn't have his statements. Mm-hmm. He didn't. Ha- he didn't have his statements. And apparently, that was uh, um, from what Des Dunn said, one of our listeners. That that's just like how things were. That wasn't even his fuck up. Like that just was how things were done. But he didn't have Katie's statement. He didn't have Youngster's statement. He didn't have any of that stuff. And so he wasn't. They, he didn't know what what Katie had said. Yeah. So I guess you don't want to push too far in case he comes out and goes, "Yeah, she did it." Yeah. I, I, then I mean, you, I, you shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah. So all they did was, yeah, they just brought him up and and, and for the state, he's like, they're they're like, did you see her grandma? No. Did you hear her say anything about getting the keys? Nope. And then for cross, uh, coin comes up and says, were you paying attention? He's like, no, I was looking at the radio. I was playing with the radio. Like, and, and that was it. That's all. That's the only thing he testified to. I think some of this is so hard because we, you know, we have the privilege of, of hindsight on it. Right. So, so it's so hard to actually go back and, and think about that. I, I cannot wrap my brain around still how it's possible that these statements, like to me, that's Brady, you know, it's so like KD's statement. Mm-hmm. KD says he saw Jennifer come. To the scene after the crime was committed from the other way. Youngster says that Jennifer was outside while the crime was. Those are exculpatory statements. Even though Detective Allen said 
that they were uh, that they were incriminating statements, and that's why you know he knew Jennifer was lying because her story didn't match. Her story actually did match youngsters that, that she was there. Like I don't understand how they could have not given like how was that not Brady material? These exculpatory statements that were given to police that were not turned over to the fence. and maybe they were. That's just you know based on and I know she's um, she works in in the legal field, so she knows. Uh, certainly better than I would, but um, it's pretty shocking to me. I've never seen anything like that before. Ellen says, the fake voice. If the fake voice is imagined, the relaying of what it said seems to reflect the knowledge of the person retelling what it said. To KD, it says, quote, you can go back upstairs. And as pointed out by others in the group, how would the fake voice know where the people on the other side of the door came from? But Eva says that the fake voice said, quote, I just fell down and hit my head. That's very specific. If the voice thing is made up, how did even know that Catalina had head injuries? If you're just making the whole thing up to put yourself at the other side of the door with no knowledge of the crime, why not, quote, I just fell down and hurt my ankle, knee, hip, etc. Isn't Jennifer the only one who actually saw Catalina's body and could have gotten the idea of head injuries? Or did Eva get a good enough look at Catalina's body after the fact to get that detail stuck in her head? I don't know. That's another weird thing. I I don't remember if it was Keith or Pam, but one of either Keith or Pam said in their statement that she saw the two black girls come inside. But the other said, I only saw Jen come inside. Jen says, no, Jen does say that it was Jen and Eva that went inside. Ruby and Cena and Nina, who we haven't got into her statement yet, all say that, no, Eva was up in her apartment during that time. So it gets a little confusing about whether she was in there or not. But but the bigger point is, yeah, this is all things that you, you have to you have to measure, right? So we've got – I pointed out that they all said that the voice said something different. But, yeah, so the voice the voice says in KD's story is another reason why I know the story is not true, that they're screaming. There's such loud screaming. That's why they come downstairs. The stairs, if you look at the apartment, they're not attached to the apartment, meaning it's not like a staircase over your head. It's a metal and concrete staircase that is free floating away from the building. You know, you you step out onto it and walk down, it, and and to one side between the patio and the stairs is this big closet, and then you got a nice big airspace kind of between the stairs and the door. You got to go back around underneath this, the stairs to get to the doorway. The stairs are never over the actual apartment, and so when they come down the stairs. And they start, you know, yelling inside supposedly, and the voice says, "Everything's fine. You can go back upstairs." There's no way. How would the person know they came from upstairs? Like I said, what I was getting at, there's people who've been like, "Well, they probably heard the footsteps coming down the stairs." Like, what are they wearing? Cowboy boots? Mm-hmm. And even still, they're in the middle of killing someone. There's so much screaming happening that they 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 hear it from upstairs, and yet they hear, you know, probably. I'm guessing I didn't hear anybody say they put shoes on barefoot people walking down the stairs it's demonstrating the absurdity of the of the account and it's leaking out information kd knows they came from upstairs so it makes sense for him to say they said to go back upstairs and then i think that's what ellen's getting here too with, with eva she says you know, the voice says i just fell and hit my head well you know i don't believe this this ever happened right i don't i don't believe that the uh, that, that that screaming voice ever happened but in eva's rendition of it Eva's demonstrating that she knows about the head injuries, you know, you know, so there, there's leaking out information there too. Again, that's one of those, you know, what do we believe? Was she ever in the apartment? Did she see the body? 
Is there another way she could have known she was hit her head? Was it a fluke? We don't know. But yeah, there's 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 definitely, but all that plays into the fact that that screaming never happened. I, and I haven't really seen anybody dispute that. You know, as far as, you know, the, the folks that, that lean towards Jennifer being guilty, I haven't seen anyone arguing that they think that old screaming situation did happen. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the maybe the fan page will light up after this and people will tell me I'm wrong about that. But it seems to be pretty generally accepted at this point that it didn't happen. All right. Our last question comes from Madeline. Bob, did you know before you interviewed Jennifer that she wasn't going to tell you any details about the case at all? It must have been incredibly frustrating that you weren't able to say, Jennifer, what happened? Yeah, no, I didn't know that. I, I think maybe we maybe we didn't include that in the episode where I played my conversation with Jennifer, um, but I think it was in there. I think it was in there. I, I think it was. Yeah, well. you heard it happen. I, I said, all right, so well, now tell me what actually happened that morning. And she like, she's like, Bob, 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 Bob. My lawyer said that I, I can't talk about my case. He doesn't want me talking about specifics of my case. That's when I found out. As I was sitting with a notebook full of questions in front of me uh, that I was planning on asking her. Um, yeah. And as you know, like I haven't talked to her since probably episode two. We did. I did a couple. I did a couple interviews with her. Where we got some personal information, which you guys have heard. And then after that, it was like, well, there, you know, I, I don't need to chit chat, you know, and I probably at some point will. But, you know, I, I, I try to keep a distance where I'm not like just like becoming friends with people. They were trying to work with because I don't want that to, to to seep in any kind of bias for me. Um, so if I can't if I can't talk to her about the case, there's no reason for me to talk to her right now. She seems great. She seems like somebody I'd like to chat with, but it's just there's there's no reason for it, and it could even be detrimental for me to continue to do so when I'm, there's no purpose in it. Um, so I haven't spoken to her in months uh, since then. I'm just we're just working working on case documents, working on the case, and uh, we're gonna see where it goes from there. And with that being said, I think we're gonna go and wrap this episode up. My voice is not recovered yet from. Crime con, and I feel like it's. I've got about four more sentences left before it's gone. Yeah, thank you to everybody that came out. Thank you for all the the drinks and and hanging out with us. Even though that last place was super loud, and we had to yell at everybody. That's but, what got me. But but thank you guys for coming out. We really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it was a blast, and we had yeah the, the last uh, fan meetup we had huge turnout. Had a great time, but it was in a bar that had it had uh, Cardi B blasting <laughs> at full volume the entire time. So. Every conversation, you're screaming into someone's ear six inches away from you. Uh, so, yeah, my ears nor my voice box have recovered since then. Uh, let you guys know what's up now. Uh, what's up in, with True Crime Binge? We had Jamie Rice from the Murderers Podcast on this week. We actually talk about the Anand Syed case, if you're interested in that. Up and coming, I don't know in what order. The live show we did with Nick and Captain was a fun one to be coming up. I just interviewed Laura Nyrider from uh, Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions. Probably saw her on uh, Making a Murderer. And next week, I have the host of the Piketon Massacre on True Crime Bin. So all of that is coming up. And for this week's episode of Truth and Justice, as of right now, what I'm working on is to continue our theme of breaking down each one of the people of interest in the case. So we're going to be talking about Red Rock. That is in two days on Sunday. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. 
Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>